So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Haggai. If you don't know where that is, it's on page 1,315. <laughs> or if you don't have my Bible, the other way to find it is, there's two ways. One, it's, it's, I'm guaranteed that no one is going to sleep through this message because this book is between the Z's. <laughs> Zephaniah and Zechariah, right, tucked in between there to keep you awake is the book of Haggai. Or the easiest way is to go to Matthew and back up two chapters. So there you go. you got three ways to find the book of Haggai. And what I'm going to do today, um, the reason I'm doing the book of Haggai is that's where we're going next. Some of you are wondering where we're going next in Sojourners after Nahum is over, uh, which will be next week, and it is Haggai. So I'm here to do the flyover of Haggai. I'm here to do the forest so that uh, Joe and Abner and Chris can do the trees. Okay? So so that's what we're doing today is um, an an overview of the whole book of Haggai. Uh, That's that's the, the task. That's the idea. That's the plan. Now, the book of Haggai can be organized two different ways, and I'm going to do both since I'm doing the overfly. Uh, It can be organized by chapters, uh, and there's a grand total of two. So you can divide it into two parts, chapter 1 and chapter 2. They divide pretty neatly in that way. Or you can divide it by the number of messages that are given in Haggai, which is five. There are five messages, distinct messages, that are given, and we're going to point out both of those things as we go along, Lord willing. All right, so turn with me to the book of Haggai and look at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. All right, so a couple of things here. First of all, just in in terms of context, um, this is a book written to those who have returned from the Babylonian captivity. Um, About 50,000... About 50,000 Jews had returned from the Babylonian captivity uh, to Judah. And this is after 70 years of captivity. Now, uh, Chris and Joe and Abner know that there are two views concerning the 70 years and how these are um, accounted for. And And those of you who know me know that I'm going to give the Abner Chow view. So the Abner Chow view is that the 70 years of captivity are 605 to 536 from the deportation to the beginning of temple reconstruction. There's another way to view it. I don't remember if I I didn't even put it up there because it's not (laughs) Abner's view, so it can't be right. But it has to do with destruction of the temple to the completion of restoration, Um, but you can just ignore that. All right, so that's the context. And then verse 1 tells us, Uh, that this message, this is message number one, 
All right? Message number one. I mentioned to you there's five messages in the book. Message number one is to Zerubbabel, who is the governor, and Joshua, who is the high priest. Now, this is not Joshua the prophet that we saw earlier in Scripture. This is a different Joshua. This one is the high priest at the time. So this first message is to the leaders, okay? Not the gallons. This is, the, this is to the leaders, the top people, the top dogs, the, the governor, who is the political leader, and Joshua, who is the religious leader, all right? Um, and it's significant that as to which each, who the, each message is sent to. So you want to pay attention to that as we go along. So this is a message to the leaders. And um, look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So the first message to the leaders is, Okay, the people have decided that even though they're back in the land, it's not time to rebuild the temple. But notice what God says here. He says, this people. He doesn't say what he usually says. He doesn't say, my people. He doesn't say, not my people. He distanced himself from the people here. So, right off the bat, something's wrong. Okay, We know something is amiss here, right at the very beginning. Something's not right. They have put off rebuilding the temple because... God is not their priority. So, if I go back, chapter 1, the theme of chapter 1 is misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. And we can see this now, that the people's priority is not God. Then, There are are implications to this, to them not rebuilding the temple. There are public implications, and there are personal implications. The public implications are, what do the nations think? Because in the ancient world, and we've talked about this before, in the ancient world, the size and the grandeur and the extravagance of the temple shows what the people think of their God. So you have temples to the various gods in the various nations, and they try to make them... Some of you might wonder why they make the temples so luxurious, and they take all the gold, and they do all these things of gold. So Part of the reason is to show what you think of your God, that your God is great, and your God can only, be, can only dwell in, in that type of dwelling. Well, not only is the temple not very luxurious, it's not being built. They're not even building it, irrespective of how they would build it. And so this has public implications in terms of what do the nations think about Yahweh, about the God of the Jews. Okay, But it also has personal implications. God is not the priority in their lives. And look at verse 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies desolate? 
The term paneled houses here refers to luxurious or extravagant. So the people are focusing their attention on their own personal building project, their own house. Their focus is on themselves. Misplaced priorities. Their priority is on themselves rather than on God. And that's what's happening here. So the unfinished walls of the temple and the paneled walls of their homes were visible testimony of their indifference towards God. Their misplaced priorities. God had sovereignly regathered his people so they should have immediately rebuilt the sign of his presence. The temple is the sign of his presence. God dwells everywhere, and he's actually going to make that point later. But God dwells everywhere, but the temple is the sign of his presence, the recognized location. And they don't care enough about God to even build it, much less make it extravagant. Okay? So that takes us down to verse 5. And I'm going to suggest to you that verses 5 and 7 are really key verses here. Uh, Those who are in our Bible study know that when I went through the books of the Bible, a book per lesson, I tried to pick one verse in each book as the key verse. And I picked verse 5 here as the key verse. I've since changed my mind. So now I'm calling these key verses. So the key verses here are verses 5 and 7 because they contain the same statement, which is, consider your ways. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Jump down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In the vernacular for us, that's think about it. Think about it. You have misplaced priorities. Think about it. Consider your ways. In other words, reconsider your ways because you aren't thinking properly. Okay? That's the message here. Reevaluate your priorities. Reevaluate your priorities. Now, Verse 6, in between those two, says this, You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. What's the message here? Why is that? Go down to verse 9, and the Lord tells us why. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. The the people have made efforts, but those efforts have been unsuccessful and brought meager results because their priorities are messed up. Their concern has been for their own selfish desires. There's no concern for God's house, for God's honor, for God's name, and for God's worship. And so, in fact, in verses 10 and 11, well, he tells us in verse 8, tells them in verse 8 what the solution to this problem is. Okay, he's just said in verse 6, you've done all this and you haven't, you haven't uh, accumulated anything. You have a purse with holes. Nothing seems to work. 
The solution is in verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. That's why you're being unsuccessful. That's the solution to the problem. All right? But notice what he says also in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. God has actively withheld his provision in judgment on them because of their misplaced priorities, because they have been focusing on themselves and they have been neglecting God and his name and his honor and his worship. God has actively withheld his blessing. He has told the weather not to cooperate. Okay? Um, Because their priorities are misplaced are messed up. So ironically, the people were stingy with God and this kept them poor. They were focused on themselves and so themselves did not prosper. Okay? Which, by the way, might be something that we can learn from. So, verse 12 then is the good news. The good news. The governor, the high priest, and the remnant of the people repent. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. So they actually repent. They obey God's word. They show reverence for the Lord. Okay? So that's the good news. Like the people of Nineveh that we've been talking about. Uh, They repent. Okay? That brings us to message two of the five messages, which we find in verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you. So this message is to the people now. All right, so the first message was to the leadership. This message is to the people. The first message was to the elders of Grace Church. This message is to us. Okay, the people. And... What does God say? He says in verse 13, I am with you. How's that for a message? I am with you. We've seen a couple of passages recently in Sojourners, I am against you, right? Chris was talking about it the other day. I'm against you, God says to the Ninevites, ultimately. Here, God says to the people, I am with you with you. He assures them that he is with them in this effort. If you'll just do the right thing, which you've now said you want to do, you've repented, you're going to build the temple, well, guess what? I'll help you. I'm with you in it. I'm in this with you. You're not on your own. 
Verse 14, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. These are just there to make me re-say those names all the time. And the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Now notice, it says the Lord stirred up the spirit of them. This is God energizing and motivating them. God stirred them up. He energized them and motivated them. That's how he is with them, partly, and there's more to it as well. But he is energizing them. Don't worry about it. I'm going to give you the energy. I'm going to give you the want to, to do it. Okay? Just like the Holy Spirit stirs us up and stirs people to repentance and helps um, them to see their sin and so forth in order to desire repentance, and then after repentance helps us to grow. He's doing the same thing here with them. And so... Um, it says, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, so work on the temple began. Okay? All right. And uh, the day, by the way, is the last verse of, the, of chapter 1, verse 15. They started work on the house of the Lord on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Now that's significant, just in a sense of context, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Long-term sojourners will understand some of the significance of that. Uh, That calls to mind the Exodus, It calls to mind the wandering in the wilderness. It calls to mind the promise of the promised land. And these are people who can relate to that because they have just come out of captivity themselves, just as in the Exodus, the Jews came out of captivity. Um, And this is actually, the other significance is, this is 440 years after the dedication of Solomon's temple. So 440 years to the day after the dedication of Solomon's temple, they are now starting work to rebuild the temple. Okay, so there's significance in that. So this then leads us to chapter 2. Of Haggai. And as I said, you can organize it in the two chapters. So the first one was misplaced priorities. This one is misguided perspectives. Misguided perspectives. And for those of you who know me, I didn't do that literally on purpose. It just happened to be that way. So misguided perspectives. That's what chapter 2 is about. And so we get... I just told you that. All right, we get to message three now of the five messages. Look at verse two. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. 
So the first message was to the leadership. The second message was to the people. This message is to the gang. This is to the leadership and the people, all three. Okay? And look at what is said. Verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? What God is showing here is that he recognizes that the people are discouraged. Some of them were old enough to have seen the original temple. And some of them had remembered its tremendous glory. Remember the glory of Solomon's temple. And now they look at it, and it seems like nothing in comparison. And so God recognizes that. He recognizes their discouragement. But this leads to a but, okay, which we find in verse 4. Look at verse 4. But... Now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. But take courage. And notice he speaks to each of the three individually. The message is for all three, and he speaks to each three individually, each of the three and tells each of them, take courage, take heart. Don't be discouraged by the fact that the temple that you're starting to build doesn't look that great. Don't be discouraged in comparing it to the previous temple. And why not? Because I am with you. For the second time, he says, I am with you. The first time was to the people themselves, and now it's to all three. I am with you. Don't be discouraged. You can do this. It will come out fine. I'll make sure it comes out fine. You don't have to make comparisons in your mind with, the, with Solomon's temple. He's straightening out their perspective. They're building a temple to worship God, and God is going to make sure that it's It's adequate for that purpose. Their hearts ought to be in it. They ought to be enthusiastic. They've repented and decided, yes, we need to build the temple, but their perspective is not quite right. They need to be enthusiastic. They need to be going full bore. Their hearts need to be in it because God is with them in this effort. He's going to help them. He's stirring them up. He's energizing them and encouraging them along the way. And this might be, for us, the key to dealing with despondency. Listen to God's promises. For us, when we get discouraged, when we get despondent, we should think about who is with us. You might recall someone saying, Lo, I am with you when? Always. 
Lo, I am with you always. That's what, that's what Jesus has told us. Remember, God worked differently in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came and went. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. They are looking forward to the Messiah. We had the Messiah who has promised to be with us always. So when we're depressed, when we're discouraged, when we're despondent, we have the same promise that they got, except we have it all the time. We don't have to wait for it. We already have it. So change your perspective. It's not about you. It's about God. It's not about what, how you think the temple looks. It's to obey, and the Lord is with you. That's the message that they're receiving. Then in verse 5, he says, As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Again, they could identify with coming out of Egypt, even though not all of them came out of Egypt, because they all came out of Babylonian captivity. They came out of a similar situation. And so he says then, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Yeah, okay, the temple isn't here yet. We don't have the temple. We don't even have the tabernacle. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant, those places that are specifically identified with the place that God dwells. But he's telling them, look, my spirit is everywhere, and it is abiding with you now, even though the temple isn't here even though you don't have the Ark of the Covenant. My spirit is in your midst, so don't fear. Some were no doubt, they no doubt doubted that God could be with them without a temple or without the Ark of the Covenant. And he's reassuring them again that he is with them. Then, In the next few verses, we have an interesting shift in focus here uh, to an apocalyptic perspective, to a longer-term perspective. So in verse 6, we begin sort of an eschatological messianic promise. So here's where we start to talk about the Messiah in Haggai. It's not the, the last part. Of it, but it's the beginning. So verse 6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This probably refers to the events of Revelation 6 through 19. This is when God shakes the earth in all these ways, shakes the, uh, shakes the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the dry land. Our Bible study just finished going through the whole book of Revelation, and we spent seeming like, seemingly endless time on God shaking things. And he's, he's shaking the earth, he's shaking the heavens, he's shaking the seas, he's shaking everything and reorganizing it and, 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 and uh, tearing it down and destroying it ultimately. Um, and 
this is when God shakes all of these things, is in Revelation 6 through 19, setting the stage for the Messiah, for the second coming of the Messiah, and for the millennial kingdom. Here, it's meant to reassure them that God is in charge. It's meant to reassure them that God is in charge, and Israel will recover. It may not look like it, given the current situation with the temple, but God is in charge. And this verse, by the way, for those of you who are keeping score or if you're on Jeopardy, um, this is the only verse in Haggai that's quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted in Hebrews 12, 26. And the argument that is made there is that those in Christ have an unshakable kingdom. Uh, And so you might want to look that up at some point. Verse 7 says, I will shake the nations... Uh, This refers to upsetting political and governmental structures to pave the way for the the millennium, for the second coming of the Messiah. And then it says, and uh, they will come with the wealth of all nations. This refers to treasures uh, coming to fill the temple. So, yeah, the temple looks kind of bad right now, looks kind of like a second-hand kind of thing, but the nations are going to come with their treasures. It's going to be restored in that sense. And then you have another messianic reference, and I will fill this house with glory. This refers to the millennial temple when the Messiah will fill the house with glory. Verse 8 tells you again about those treasures. The silver is mine, the gold is mine declares the Lord of hosts. So you have a mixture there of what's going on there and what's going on in the millennial kingdom and with the millennial temple. Then verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory here is talking about the millennial glory of the temple, the latter glory in the latter days, the, the days of latter rain, etc., uh, in, the, in the end times, the millennial glory of the temple. So don't be discouraged. Ultimately, the glory will be greater than Solomon's temple. Ultimately, there will be a millennial temple that will put the put Solomon's temple to shame, so to speak. It will be greater than Solomon's. So what God is basically saying here is, you guys rebuild the temple, I'll take care of the glory part. You're upset because you don't see much glory in the temple, you think it's kind of, you know, whatever, I'll take care of the glory. You rebuild the temple. You be obedient, I'll handle the results which is what God says from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. You be obedient, I'll handle the results. Okay? So he's changing their perspective, giving them a long-term, ultimate perspective. Don't focus on right now, don't focus on the negative, focus on what I'm promising you, focus on the fact that I'm with you, focus on the fact that I'm energizing you, that I'm empowering you, And just do what I tell you to do. 
and focus on what's going to come if you are obedient. And what's going to come anyway, because I'm in charge. And then he talks about, in verse 9, In this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You might remember Isaiah 9, 6, that the coming Messiah is the Prince of Peace. This is the real permanent peace of the Messiah's kingdom rule. All of this is meant to change their perspective, to get them to see things God's way. Which brings us to message four. Message four. Verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. Well, here's a new group. We've talked about Zerubbabel and Joshua. That's message one. Talked about the people in message two. We talked about Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people in message three. And now a new gang is entered into the picture in terms of God's message. This is a message to the priests. And he sets up an object lesson for the priests in order to teach them. Look at uh, verses 12 and 13. Notice what he says in verse 11, ask the priests for a ruling. Ask the priests to decide. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? If he brings holy food and puts it up with other stuff, does that make the other stuff holy? And um, the priest answered and said, no. All right, then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these other things, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it will become unclean. So ceremonial cleanness cannot be transferred, but ceremonial uncleanness can be transferred. So what's he, what's he getting at here? The sins of the people have made their offerings unacceptable. The sins of the people have made their offerings unacceptable. Yes, they've repented, and yes, they are now doing the word of the Lord, but they have sins that they committed before they repented that have to be dealt with. Okay, And their new repentance, the new cleanness, can't transfer to cover the old sins. Okay. Working on the temple does not now automatically make them acceptable to God. The fact that they've gotten themselves straightened out and they're starting to obey, there's still the previous sin. So, verse 15, we get this word again. But now, consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. 
Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider. So, once again, think about it. Think about it. Change your perspective. You have sinned. You have to, you've repented, but you have to recognize still that sin. And that's why he's explaining these things have happened. Uh, Verse 16, their harvests have been poor. Verse 17, I don't remember if I put this on here or not. I did, good, all right. Verse 16, their harvests have been poor. Verse 17, God has sent bad weather. And this continued, verses 18 and 19, even once they started working on the temple. Look at verse 19. Is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. So they are still paying for their previous disobedience. And they have had a bad harvest. There's been bad weather. But from now, God God says, from now on, things are going to change. Shortages continued after the temple work began, but now he is going to change things. Now, what's the perspective here? God must punish disobedience and unfaithfulness. God must punish the previous disobedience and unfaithfulness. How does that relate to us? What do we learn from that? This is why Jesus' sacrifice was necessary. It wasn't enough for us to repent. It wasn't enough for all the people who become believers to repent and ask forgiveness. Someone has to pay the price. To satisfy a just God, to satisfy justice itself, the price must be paid. And this is why Jesus had to go to the cross. It wasn't enough for us to say sorry. Just like maybe when you're raising your kids, right? And sometimes they're actually sorry. (laughs) They don't just say it because you make them say it. Sometimes they're actually sorry, but sometimes they still get get punished. Uh, Someone who commits a crime and is really, really sorry still goes to prison. Or at least they used to. Um, So, this penalty still has to be paid. Justice still has to be served. And that's why God continues to punish them for a while, uh, even after they begin work on the temple. Which brings us to message five. Message five. Look at verse 20 and 21. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the, of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. So this message is to Zerubbabel only. Not to Joshua, not to the people, not to the priests. This one is for Joshua only. And I've told you to pay attention to who the messages are for, right? So a message to the leaders, 
a message to the people, message to the leaders and the people, message to the religious leaders, the priests, and now this message is focused on Zerubbabel, and there's an important reason for that. And that is that this is a royal prophecy. This is a royal prophecy. Zerubbabel is the grandson of the king when they were carried into Babylon. He's in the royal line. And verse 21 says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Verse 22, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. This is God, once again, this is referring to God clearing the way for the Messiah via judgment, the judgment that is coming to to make straight the way for the coming of the Messiah, which leads to verse 23, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, and it's going to be another 45 minutes. (laughs) Maybe not. Um, Look at verse 23. Um, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Hey, there's a message, right? Dude, you hear what God said to me, man? He's chosen me. Wait a minute. We've all gotten that message. I think it's somewhere in Ephesians 2 or Ephesians 1 or somewhere around there. I have chosen you, but not chosen in the same way that he is choosing Zerubbabel. But nonetheless, we can perhaps relate to the thrill of being chosen by God. So in verse 23, God makes Zerubbabel a visible guarantee of a glorious future for David's line. which is a great encouragement. In chapter 2, verse 9, it talks about the glory and the peace of Messiah's rule. But it's really verse 23 that tells us a lot here concerning the Messiah. So, first of all, it begins with on that day. This is a messianic term. This is talking about the day of the Lord. This is talking about the end times. This is talking about Messiah's triumph. And so he begins the verse with terminology, and then he refers to Zerubbabel as my servant, which is also often a messianic title. It doesn't have to be, but in this context, I think it is. It's a title for a ruler um, in general, but it also can be a messianic title. And in this context, I think it is. And why? Because he says, I will make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you. I will make you a signet ring. The signet ring is a symbol of royal authority. And you all know this, right? Because you've all seen movies, right? With and it doesn't matter what country it is. It doesn't have to be a king of Israel. But you've seen movies of, of Roman emperors or others who do what when they're going to send a message? They take their, 
signet ring and some wax, and they put their seal in it, right? And that's the symbol of royal authority. And everybody knows not to break that seal unless you're the person it's for, or you'll get spanked, okay? It's the signet ring, the seal of God's authority, or of the ruler's authority. And so the Lord here tells the rubble, I will make you like a signet ring. You will have royal authority. This is the royal seal. Now, how can this be? Who's Zerubbabel, and how does this work? He is the grandson of Jehoiachin, and there's a curse on Jehoiachin. God removed his authority, the authority of his line. Go to Jeremiah 22. You know where that book is. Go back to Jeremiah 22. We have to see this. Jeremiah 22, starting in verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, Kaniah there is another uh, way of saying Jehoiachin. Don't ask me why. Ask Dr. Chow or, or Joe. But this is Jehoiachin, the grandfather of Zerubbabel. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Get it? Even though you were a signet ring of royal authority, I would pull you off. I would remove you from authority. Verse 25, I shall give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. This is how they got sent to Babylon to begin with. I shall hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man Kaniah or Jehoiachin a despised shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land they had not known? Notice why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land they have not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, here's the key verse, Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. If you didn't get any of 24 to 29, don't worry about it, but get 30. No man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And this is the royal line. That's why he's the king to begin with. Doesn't this sort of mess up the whole Messiah thing? No descendant of his will sit on the throne. God removed the authority of the kings of Judah here in Jehoiachin. But in verse 23... Of Haggai 2, 
God restores the line of David through Zerubbabel. He makes him the signet ring. He tore, the, he tore out Jehoiachin like he was a signet ring. And now he makes Zerubbabel the signet ring and restores the line of David. But Zerubbabel isn't king, right? He's what? Governor. So get this now. The, the curse was, no one of your descendants will sit on the throne. He's not sitting on the throne. But God makes him the rightful ruler, the rightful king. He gives him the right to be king. The royal line is restored by making him the rightful king. And this is important. It's tied up with the Messiah. Because the line is not on the throne, he's not an active king. It's not contrary to what God said in Jeremiah 22.30. But where do we have to go for the rest of the story? Because Zerubbabel becomes a conduit of sorts. He's a conduit. For the rest of the story, we get to flip two chapters over. Which way? Back or forward? Forward. He isn't the king, but he's the rightful king. So go two chapters forward. I forgot I put all this on here, so I'm sorry. He can't be king because of the curse on Jehoiachin. We just went through that. So... We got to go two two books. Did I say chapters? Two books. I'm sorry. We got to go two books forward to Matthew. Go to the book of Matthew. And chapter one. This is important. Go down to uh, verse 12 of Matthew 1. uh, Matthew's genealogy divides at the deportation. There are three sections of Matthew's genealogy, and it divides here. Look at verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and to Shealtiel Zerubbabel. The curse on Jehoiachin does not affect the Messiah. The promises are made to Zerubbabel as a conduit, but he's not sitting on the throne. So what God said is that none of your descendants will sit on the throne remains true. But the royal line is restored through Zerubbabel, He becomes the heir to David's throne without sitting on the throne. And he becomes the predecessor to the Messiah. How's that going to work? 
Jehoiachin traces to Joseph. This is Matthew's genealogy traces to Joseph. So the promise of Messiah throws, flows through Zerubbabel, though he isn't the king, he's the rightful king. He cannot be king because of the curse, but it doesn't affect the Messiah because it traces to Joseph. Jesus is an adopted son, not a descendant. Get it? It traces to Joseph. Joseph isn't Jesus' father. He's his adopted father. So he's not a descendant of Jehoiachin. He's an adopted son. Just as lots of kings through history adopted sons and made them king. Lots of Roman emperors adopted sons. There was a period of Roman history in which they did that all the time. They set up a system for adopting someone that they thought would be good and making them their son so that they could be emperor. So Jehoiachin and his descendants cannot sit on the throne, but that's the royal line to get to the Messiah. But it gets there through adoption. It goes to Joseph. Now, Jesus also traces to David through David's son, Nathan, through Mary. That's in Luke's genealogy. So Jesus, here's the bottom line, if you didn't get all of that. Jesus is in the royal line by birth and has the right of the firstborn by adoption. And the adoption part of it is where Zerubbabel comes in. It's where this prophecy and this promise that's made to Zerubbabel at the end of the book of Haggai comes in. This is how we're going to get to the Messiah. Even though your grandfather was cursed, and I, the Lord, said that no descendant of his will sit on the throne... A descendant of his is not going to sit on the throne, but someone from this line is going to sit on the throne through adoption. The way God maneuvers and controls history to fulfill his plan, ultimately. So the prophet Haggai was sent to the reconstituted people of Judah to redirect their priorities and to encourage them in obedience to God, both of which have application to you and to me, to make sure that our priorities are correct, to make sure that our perspective is correct. Through his message, we're exhorted to put God before our own desires put God's house before our paneled house, put his, him before our desires. We're encouraged to do God's work with confidence because he is with us, Jesus promised it, plus we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, which they didn't have. 
We're reminded that good works don't remove the need for punishment of sin, and our eyes and our hopes are firmly set on Jesus. All of that in the book of two-chapter Haggai. Good things can come in small packages. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Haggai. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your glorious plan and the fact that you are sovereign and that you direct all things. And Father, we just ask that you would help us to look at our priorities, to consider our ways, and to possibly reevaluate our priorities and our perspective and to get on board with your plan for our lives. And Father, we thank you for the fact that you sent your son to pay the price, to pay the price that was demanded of you as a just God, and that we, Father, can tap into that through our faith in Christ. And Father, we just pray that you would help us to just really enjoy seeing how you work through history, and Father, that you would help us to be obedient cogs in that history machine and that you'd help us to praise you and bless you and worship you. Amen.